Hello, I'm Moses. And I'm Ryan. Welcome to the Menocast. Today on our podcast, we're talking with pastor and chair of the Regional Truth and Reconciliation Group in Mennonite Church, Eastern Canada, Peter Hairsnape. We're going to have a conversation about the future of Indigenous settler solidarity work in Mennonite Church Canada. How do we make sense of the shifts that have taken place in our nationwide church in the last few years? How do we meaningfully move away from the sins of our past? And how do we move forward towards true reconciliation? Thanks for joining us. Ryan, before we got started here, we were just chatting a bit about where we may have met each other. And I don't know if you will remember this, but I remember it clearly that the first place we met uh, was on this really, um, really eye-opening trip to Ottawa to attend the closing ceremony of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Honestly, Ryan, do you remember meeting there? <laughs> I do. Um, oh, you do. <laughs> I do remember it's it's been a, it's been gosh at least what six to eight years um, has to be yeah. Uh, but I do remember two thousand fifteen. Mm-hmm. Okay, seven years. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember it well, and it was it was great to meet you, and it was uh, a, a good experience to be in Ottawa at the at the closing ceremonies together. Yeah, that I mean that whole experience for me was one of the first uh, introductions into any kind of meaningful reconciliation work um, or or even truth-telling work uh, between Indigenous and settler peoples. And I mean, there's a a whole history for the whole Truth and Reconciliation Commission about how that came about and and all of that, and it has its own complexities. But I remember very clearly just being in the room and hearing stories of survivors of residential schools Um, and just being in disbelief because me growing up in Toronto, right? Like the, the, uh, the self-proclaimed center of Canada. I don't remember ever hearing the history of Canada in that way. Mm. And, and so hearing that in Ottawa was eye opening, um, and very, um, very difficult just knowing how mm-hmm. to process that and knowing how to process my place within that. I, I don't know, Ryan, how, how did you take it? Yeah, very similarly. Obviously, I'm um, growing up in southern Alberta. It, we're we're kind of like Lethbridge is a smaller city, kind of right on the doorstep of the Blood Reserve here, the Blackfoot people. And I grew up with, you know, the problems and the issues and the some of the stereotypes and the racism that, that was just kind of in the air that I grew up in, like towards Indigenous people in our area. And so I, I grew up knowing something was wrong, even if I didn't quite know what it was or, 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 or how it had come about. And being in places like Ottawa and Montreal before that, and then even participating in the, in the TRC hearings here in Lethbridge, uh, it starts to flesh out a bit of a, well, a, a huge part of the, the story that I'd never heard as a kid, obviously. And so it was a way of mm. um, explaining a reality that I knew well, uh, or at least had observed, but some of the the history and, and the causal components to that became more and more clear the more stories I listened to, painful stories um, in, in the hearings that I attended across Canada. Yeah, and, and I feel, you know, similarly that it just kind of keeps on, I personally keep on discovering so much more about our history and our, and our story that I, you know, I need to wrestle with as a as a Canadian and as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and I, I realize that a lot of this is very context specific. You know, in, in Winnipeg, um, I, I had no idea about this beforehand, but in Winnipeg, we actually get our water from a community that's over 100 kilometers away. Uh, and in order to get our water from that community, we built an aqueduct and, and pretty much isolated uh, a part of the indigenous community that was already there. And everyone just believed that nobody lived there. Uh, and, and so for 100 years, this community was uh, in forced isolation um, and experienced a lot of hardship because of that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and any time they tried to, you know, have their voice heard, they were, it just seemed like no one would listen or they were always shut down. And so it, it was kind of like after 2015 and, and hearing the stories of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and then kind of having my eyes open to issues that have been going on for so long already. And it just seemed like I was blind to it. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and then from there, realizing how many people of faith um, and of course, people of of, uh, of no faith as well. But in our context, how many people of faith have been engaging in these conversations for decades? And mm-hmm. then again, thinking like I had I had no idea, and, mm-hmm. and I had no idea there was such a strong, um, you know, uh, mandate. I, I would say mandate uh, from our faith perspective to to engage in the work of reconciliation. Um, yeah. and, and so I just feel like I'm always. Um, I'm always learning and, and, and stuff is still coming out, right? Like it was just a, a couple of years ago that, that we heard, well, this is, this is kind of your, uh, end of Canada there, Ryan, uh, finding, um, uh, you know, finding the bodies of kids in residential schools in un- unmarked graves, you know, like that kind of thing just kind of keeps coming out more and more of it. Um, Ryan, I'm curious for you, you know, we, we've also attended together the North American Institute for uh, Indigenous Theological Studies. Um, and so I'm curious for you, when you engage in these conversations, like what is the what is the backdrop? What is the foundation that you're working from, either from a faith or a personal perspective? Well, from a faith perspective, it's pretty clear, and you've articulated it already. Um, reconciliation is to be the heart of our work as followers of Jesus. And um that's uh, how Paul describes it and others. And I think that um, wherever we are, wherever God has placed us as in, in the world, part of the task of being a follower of Jesus is to pursue reconciliation between between peoples, between stories, between um, you know various groups. That this is this is kind of the non-negotiable of of, of Christian faith in many ways. Uh, on a personal level, um, the background obviously. Well, I shouldn't say obviously. The background is that. You know, I, I'm the father of Ojibwe twins who are um, 21 years old now, incredibly. And so for the last mm-hmm. two decades of my life, I've had the opportunity to, to see the world through through their eyes and to to learn um, things that I never would have learned if I, if I wasn't in this weird role of being a, a non-Indigenous parent of Indigenous kids. Um, and mm. so... And so uh, it, <laughs> the whole metaphor of adoption uh, in in the Christian life, uh, being adopted as a child of God, has taken on new meaning. Um, also, mm. uh, as I said, looking at looking at the world and looking at our city and looking at the at the history through eyes uh, that are not my own, has has opened up new ways of exploring old 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 theologies, um, old assumptions. Um, 
all kinds of things. And, and it's not always in, in nice, neat, clean ways either. Um, it's, uh, it's, indigenous people are like all people. They're, they're, they're a diverse bunch across the spectrum, politically, ideologically. Um, and so um, it, it's, I think, I think the complexity of, of, of personal stories and has, has become important to me, you know, as, as a father and as a pastor and um, just as a, as a Christian over these last, for sure, last two decades because of my own personal story and the role that I played in, in helping our church into some of these things as well. Yeah, Ryan, and, and, and I think the, the reason why we continue having these conversations is because the work here is not done. You know, I, I know a lot of people who have been in Canada for a while and who think, you know, why are we, ta- why are we bringing up the past, right? Th- thinking that this, this is something that, you know, um, is in Canada's history like you know, centuries ago, which, which it was, but it's also been much more recent, right? With the, the last residential school in Canada only closing, I think, 1991, Mm-hmm. Uh, something like that. So, you know, it's it's quite recent. But still, people think, like, aren't, aren't we done with this? You know, ha- haven't we apologized? Can't we move on? Like, why do we mm-hmm. give time to this? And, of mm-hmm. course, we do because um, the work isn't done yet. And there's so much more for us to... Um, for us to to learn as as Christians and as Canadians about our uh, about our history and our role in in moving forward in good ways with our indigenous neighbors, um, and, and so I, I'm very excited that we have Peter here with us. I, I'm I'm kind of sad that Carrie can't be here as well. She's yeah. off uh, being a scholar, you know, studying, and can't join us for this interview. But I know she would have really loved to. Um, but we get to welcome Peter here, uh, and, and Peter, I, I don't know if you're going to remember this because uh, I don't think I would have been that memorable at the time. <laughs> but the first time I met you was in 2014 at the uh, what was called Native Assembly in Winnipeg, um, and at that time you were working with Christian peacemaker teams, now called Community Peacemaker Teams, um, and you were part of the uh, Indigenous Neighbors. Um, program i think is that what it was called the indigenous solidarity program Ah, although yes at that point it may have been the aboriginal justice team so just like oh yes an endless number of names to pick from yes (laughs) all right well with uh christian peacemaker teams (laughs) and i remember uh seeing you and hearing you at that conference and um yeah just being blown away in many ways of how uh, how you articulated um, our our story and and uh, what it means for us to be Christians in this time and the way you were engaging conversations in a very um, in a very gentle and and, and uh, gracious way is, mm. is kind of how I remember meeting you for the first time uh, and then I know that uh, you know uh, you had uh, finished your role at uh, CPT and moved on. Uh, to work, uh, I think, as the national coordinator of the student Christian movement. Um, And then, just recently, I think 2019, uh, Peter, you were called as pastor Mm. in your church um, at uh, Toronto United Mennonite Church, uh, which was very exciting news, too, to see you move into ministry. Uh, But you're also studying, is that right? That's right. I'm doing a very, very gradual uh, Master's of Theological Studies through Conrad Grable, one course per semester, uh, just the, the <laughs> <Yes>. long haul, <laughs> which is great because it means I get to meet so many more people. 
Yeah, for sure. And you get that chance to incorporate both what you're learning in the classroom and doing at the church and back and forth. And I mean, that's what I'm doing as well. And I really, mm. really enjoy that. Yeah. Well, Peter, you know, you've you've done a lot here in Canada. We want to chat a bit about your story as well and the work specifically that you're doing as the chair of the Regional Truth and Reconciliation Working Group. I know that's a long name uh, of Mennonite Church Eastern Canada. So thank you, Peter, so much for for joining us and uh, being part of this conversation today. Yeah, well, appreciate the invitation. Uh, It's always good to talk at with a bit of detail and attention on some of these huge, huge topics that underline who we are and where we are. Yeah, and, and I know when it comes to these huge, huge topics, we don't, and coming from different places across Canada too, we might not see things the same way. And and for me, having conversations and even disagreeing at some points uh, is is very helpful in, mm. our, in our own learning. Um, but I'll try to I give you a helpful disagreement then. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> Uh, for those of uh, the listeners who are, you know, noticing that your accent does not sound Canadian, mm. um, <laughs> why don't you tell us a, just a bit about your story? Like, how did you end up in Canada and, and you know, working uh, for Christian peacemaker teams? And how did you get involved in the Mennonite church? Well, ultimately, you know, bl- blame goes to God because, you know, you make your plans <laughs> and then God tells you what you're actually going to be doing. So for me, I grew up in England. Um, I was educated in Scotland and I grew up in a non-denominational church congregation. And uh, in, when, during my university years, I really began to feel a call to do something with my faith um, that would be a little more active. Um, but I knew I was not going to be any good as an evangelist, um, just didn't, uh, didn't have those skills. So, um, and I became very convinced of um, a lot of the truths that the early Anabaptists became convinced of, um, the, the things that, I, that really spoke to me in our faith um, were, were part of that movement, but without any real connection to Mennonites or Anabaptism. So I just sort of, had you had you heard about Anabaptists at the time, or you just you came up with the ideas separately well, from? <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't claim to have come up with any of these ideas myself. Um, I just did some reading around the topic. Um, this was in the early days of Wikipedia, um, but it, where um, it was still a bit a bit marginal, and I kind of came across some some references and things like that. But really, without a concept that. Mennonites or Anabaptists were sort of things that were around nowadays or that there were, you know, such things as denominations or conferences. And of course, in the UK, um, there isn't a huge presence of, of Anabaptist um, organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is there and I did eventually connect to that. But um, yeah, I, it took a couple of years and then I, um, I encountered what was then Christian peacemaker teams. Um, a good friend of mine had been taking, had been uh, doing solidarity trips to to Palestine and he described this group of eccentric English Quakers uh, (laughs) that were doing this odd work of accompaniment with communities that were facing violence and he said you know you should you should check them out so I I did Um, and um, at the time I thought to myself yeah this is this is what God wants me to do and I uh, sought after training with with CPT, um, thinking, oh, I'll go and serve in Palestine. 
because that was the only project I knew anything about at the time. Mm. CPT had a few different projects around the world. And as part of the training, I learned about what was then the Aboriginal justice team. And um, one of the things that they said as part of that was, you know, most of our volunteers come from North America. And most of those volunteers want to go somewhere else. They, they don't want to stay in North America. They want to go to Kurdistan or Colombia or Palestine. So it's kind of hard for us to get volunteers to come and work on these matters of indigenous justice. And I thought, well, I'm not from North America. <laughs> I could go there. That sounds pretty cool. Mm. Who wouldn't want to do that? It sounds fascinating. And I always like to say, you know, I, I really didn't know anything about indigenous people in North America. Um, you know, I'd never even thought, this is very embarrassing, I'd never thought, oh, there are indigenous people in Canada. Because all we'd done was learn a little bit about indigenous people in what is currently the United States. And, you know, even that that colonial boundary, you know, it's like, okay, so I know about indigenous people in the US. It didn't sort of occur to me to think, and therefore there must be indigenous people elsewhere in the, the continent. So I, I like to say that I arrived knowing nothing, and this was a, a big advantage to me, because it meant I didn't have to unprogram the sort of what I often think of as the, the settler colonial stories. Um, and I didn't have the kind of a, a family personal connection to those stories that I had to wrestle with. I could just show up and start to listen to what people were telling me about the truth of what it means to be living on these lands. And I think that was helpful. It was also very helpful that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission began the process of hearings um, around about the same time that I arrived um, in 2010, because it meant that instantly there was um, there was a possibility of hearing directly from indigenous people who had been profoundly, profoundly impacted by this alliance of church and state. Um, so I was never under any um, misapprehension or anything about that, that, that this was this very, very significant thing within um, Canadian consciousness, that this was something that needed, that was being dealt with at that time. And I was also very aware of the, yeah, like the long, long history and the work of many, many, many people to bring that into public consciousness. So it's been, it's been a very interesting period. I've been, been here for about 12 years now. Um, mm. So during, during that time, there's been the TRC, there's been the Isle No More movement, there's been the Land Back movement, there's been, um, yeah, some, some very fascinating, interesting um, expressions of indigenous sovereignty. Um, mm -hmm. And in all that time, I've been trying to pay attention to what is the role of those of us who are not indigenous on these lands. For myself, you know, what does it mean for me to be coming as like a, a white British citizen and <laughs> able to come and live here? And um, what's my responsibility to the treaties that were signed that, you know, I didn't even know about until a couple of years ago. So I, you know, when, when uh, Ryan, you and, and Moses were talking about the, uh, you know, your own personal histories and how you've engaged in this, that's something I find really, um, really interesting because many, many people have already have that entanglement or that engagement, um, sometimes in incredibly profound ways. So I have a little bit of distance from that, um, but, you know, I've been here 12 years now. Mm -hmm. um, I... Uh, I'm also enmeshed. I'm entangled. I've I've um, aligned myself with a particular church, and I've um, engaged in in taking on part of that that weird hybrid Mennonite identity. Um, so I feel like uh, I'm pretty pretty clear that I do have a place in this mm. conversation as well. Can, can we just unpack really quickly your you know 
where you're coming from and the context um, of the UK. And yeah. I, I found it fascinating. This is a little bit off topic, but not really. But I, I found it fascinating when, when the Queen passed away mm-hmm. just a few weeks ago. Uh, and the commentary around that from people around the world who were colonized by uh, by England, by, by Britain. Um, mm. and, and, uh, you know, where a lot of, uh, the Commonwealth or just kind of the, the public in general was, uh, I'd say collectively grieving the loss of the queen. There were others saying, <laughs> you know, why should, like, really, like, why should I care? Right. <laughs> you know, the queen represented colonization, yeah. uh, to us. Um, so I'm just curious that like you, you're talking about, you know, what is our role maybe as Canadians? Is there any sense for people of the UK that they have a role in this oh. yet? Yeah, great question. And that was a big thought of mine when I when I came here, you know, and really was part of the reason why I wanted to involve myself in this work. Um, I thought, how did I reach the age I was at, which was, you know, I was in my mid 20s without ever having spared a thought about Canada and how Canada came to be and what the history was, you know, I was not, I had access to Wikipedia, right? I was not sort of cut <laughs> off, um, unable to, to learn that stuff, that there wasn't hidden knowledge, but somehow I'd never had to give a thought to it. Hmm. Um, and one of the things I've been interested in, but haven't got a lot of uh, real data to share on is, the different indigenous nations and their 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 relationship to the crown mm. you know i feel like the um like the mohawk experience is that that's been sort of expressed to me is you know we are military allies of the crown um you know that is our history we we fought together in the um the u.s revolutionary war um and that you know so there's there's a very strong assertion of, of sovereignty, of um, national identity in that, saying, yeah, we're allies, we're equal, right? So that concept of a nation-to-nation relationship in that case takes this very, I'll say, like very non-Mennonite form of being, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a military alliance. Um, you will come and support us in our wars, we'll come and support you in, in your wars. Um, so that's that's weird. Uh, and actually, one of the one of the really significant moments in my own understanding, um, this is my sidetrack here. Um, back in 2013, um, I was involved in a trip um, back to the UK with this group of mostly, I think, um, mostly um, Prairie Indigenous um, community members, including veterans, um, going essentially traveling to the to London to mark the anniversary of the Royal Proclamation of 1763, um, which is a topic I can talk about for a long time. But (laughs) essentially, it was a very interesting piece of legislation um, that in some ways recognized indigenous sovereignty over land in North America. So there was this thought, you know, shall we commemorate this in some ways, 250 years? Um, And this group traveled back to to London, um, and I got to sort of go along. Um, and we, we had multiple meetings and things like that. Um, lots of very interesting learning took place. Um, and there was, 
you know, part of the, the desire of the trip was to have this royal connection, right? To reach out to the royals and say, you know, as, as essentially as holders of the sovereignty of your nation, like, let's connect as, you know, as equals, like on a nation to nation relationship. And of, of course, there was no response, um, mm. I, you know, uh, we, we did, we had a nice kind of long party, boring party at the Canadian consulate <laughs> that was kind of there as a bit of a, well, you came all this way, we'll do something for you. Um, <laughs> but the most, one of the most significant, and this was very challenging for me as a, a peace activist, most significant engagements was at the barracks, um, uh, horse guard mm. parade where the veterans of our party were hosted and really honored by veterans as like people who had fought together, who had engaged in the wars of the crown <laughs> together. And, you know, that was really interesting for me because um, my, my faith has really caused me to question the, the, the place of the, the military. Um, and, and here it was, was, this was the place where nation to nation relationship was working and where they there was this mutuality and this honor of these two different groups of people. And I thought how interesting it is that that's the place where it takes place, where, where there is some essence of reconciliation or of, of mutuality. It has, it, it takes place there, but it can't take place somehow in the, the land planning offices or, or something like that. Mm. So it was challenging for me. If you were to, to pinpoint in maybe just from your time with uh, CPT, um, like what would be the, the issue or the question that, that we haven't been dealing well with as settler people in Canada? You know, mm. is, is there something you would pinpoint to be like, this is, you know, from everything I've seen, this is where we should be focusing or that kind of thing. Yeah. Just one, huh? Okay. <laughs> the most obvious answer is just land. Um, and it's it, perhaps the, mo the thing we have not been focusing on is what is our relationship to land. And I, I want to name that that's very different from one individual to another. And sh you know, our churches are places where people who own multiple properties rub shoulders with people who own no properties and have no chance in their lives of owning land. And I think sometimes the conversation in churches can ignore that reality, right? Um, can kind of ignore that fact. Um, so, you know, I don't want to overcomplicate things, but I also don't want to oversimplify things. Mm. You know, land is the thing where some deep feelings come up and I don't think that's inappropriate although what people do with those feelings can be inappropriate. I remember years ago going to um, an event at, uh, at the Six Nations of the Grand River and there was a bit of a standoff between two groups of demonstrators. Um, the details are, are complex, I uh, don't need to go into them here but um, one of the things I did is a good uh, like a, a good de-escalating CPTO as I went to the people and had a, had a chat with somebody, you know, kind of pulled someone aside. Oh yeah. Like what, what, what's your, what are you thinking? What do you, what's, what's the issue here? And, um, like within a couple of, within a couple of conversations, the person I was talking to says, you know, if they, if the indigenous people get their rights, does that mean I have to leave? And does that mean I need to go mm. back to somewhere? Right. Um, and, you know, a couple of comments on that. Well, yeah, like, it's a, it's a reasonable question. 
And there's an answer to it as well. But, you know, she was asking me. She wasn't asking any of the indigenous people who were there. Um, mm. she, she didn't have a place to, to process that set of feelings and what it would mean for her in her mind to be exiled or cut off from her, what she felt was her land. Um, so like there, there are these, you know, and I like for, as far as I can tell, the answer is no, it doesn't mean that there's a, there's another way of thinking about decolonization that doesn't involve replicating the, um, the, the violent process of, of, of dispossessing people, you know, our relationship to land doesn't have to be one of, um, fiat ownership necessarily. Um, that's just the way that most of us have been raised and most of us think about that. But, but the thing that really strikes me is there's a deep, like emotional and spiritual fear and anxiety. And that I think is driving a lot of people's responses. They're sort of automatic. I can't listen to this truth because if I do, there'll be implications for me and for my ownership and my security. Because people's security is based on their ownership. That's the system that we have. It's not a great system, and it doesn't need to be the only system. But that is what we have inherited or bought into. So when I talk about land being the issue, it's not... I know it's not as simple as, you know, give the land back, um, because then there's a lot of questions that come from that. And there's a huge, there's a huge uh, abundance of what is called crown land, you know, which is land that is held by the crown on behalf of the indigenous nations, right? That's the legal fiction that's underneath crown land is that it's being looked after to benefit the indigenous nations, right? And um, Arthur Manuel in his last book said, um, yeah, what if, what if just 10% of that crown land gets transferred immediately to indigenous nations. It would have no impact on Canada whatsoever. And it would have a huge impact on the indigenous nations. You know, it, it would just change, it would change the playbook. So like, what if we just think about 10% for now? Um, but, but, you know, it's all about precedent. It's all about, well, if we do that, then what? If we do that, then what? You know, if we, if we, um, if we give slightly on this thing, there's just all this fear and anxiety behind it. So, you know, all this to say, there is definitely a lot of legal questions around land and a lot of details and things like that. And there is an important spiritual question as well, which of course is one thing that I think the church can be engaged in. So that's just one thing. <laughs> Let's try to knock that one out by the end of the hour and then we can move on to <laughs> whatever's next. We're gonna take a quick break from our episode to give away another resource thanks to the Common Word Bookstore and Resource Center. For this episode, we're giving away a copy of Walking Together, Intercultural Stories of Love and Acceptance by Neil and Edith von Gunten. If you don't know who Neil and Edith von Gunten are, they worked for many years in Indigenous settler relations with Mennonite Church Canada, but also with other organizations. They have years of experience and tons of stories to share about their ministry. Now, if you would like to win a copy of this book, all you need to do is go to our Facebook page at The Menocast, like our page, and you will automatically be entered to win a copy of Walking Together. Now, what I love about Common Word is that they do much more than just offer resources to buy or to borrow. If you go to their website at commonword.ca, you'll find all kinds of other supplements that go along with the resources there. For example, for this very book, 
Walking Together by Neil and Edith von Gunten. If you go to the website and find the book on the website, you can buy it there, you can borrow it there, but you can also see an interview and a video of a book launch that Common Word held. So go to commonword.ca and check out the wide variety of resources available to you there. And again, if you'd like to win a copy of this book, just go to our Facebook page, like the Menocast, and you will be automatically entered to win. Let's get back to the episode. Peter, the, the, the question of the best way, how, how churches can support Indigenous communities just, just in living well. I mean, one, one of the questions I often get from within the Mennonite church and without is um, it, it often feels like there's kind of a one-size-fits-all approach to what that looks like and what that means. And, and here, here in Alberta, there are Indigenous communities that have written op-eds and major papers saying what we want is 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 pipelines we want mm. jobs we want yeah. we want our communities to have um and i'm not advocating for this but it, but it's just to highlight that there's there's more than one conception of, of, of the best way to to help communities achieve the, the wellness and stability and security that many of us take for granted and I'm not sure we're always good at complexifying the narrative as much as 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 would would reflect the reality on the ground. Um, I'm wondering what you might, how you might respond to some of the people you know that I rub shoulders with here in Alberta who say, yeah, there's there's not there's not just one solution for 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 how to, for for there's not even one one indigenous voice that we have yeah. to, to ally with. There's multiple indigenous voices and there's multiple perspectives on what the best way forward is, and it can be complicated for people who aren't politically engaged or active and aren't really don't feel qualified or competent to talk about land issues and who genuinely are warm-hearted and want to help but but they say look there's there's clearly more than one indigenous voice out there who do i ally with it's a good question i don't have a clear answer but i'll give you some thoughts that i've i've considered um in similar situations i think there was an idea um when i first came to North America and was began to be involved in sort of allyship work, a desire to support indigenous communities, that like on those situations, you as a non-indigenous person would like never just sort of express your opinion. You'd kind of withhold or, um, you know, you might have opinions about, uh, about yeah, pipelines, for example, um, or mining or something like that. Um, but that, you know, you, you just acknowledge the community sovereignty to determine those, those matters. This, this was disrupted for me a little bit um, by a speaker who talked about um, the four things that communities needed to do to be considered sovereign, which was, and I'll see if I can get them all, um, you know, you have to be able to feed yourself, have to be able to clothe yourself, um, have to be able to determine your membership, and then another fourth one that I can't remember now. And he talked about how, yeah, I mean, he, he was talking about how Indigenous nations have been denied, systematically denied those four, those four pieces, um, including, you know, even such things as being able to determine who is part of your um, your membership, how you make decisions, how you set up um, your own governance structures and things like that. So, um, and part of that was was to say, yeah, like you yourselves as non-Indigenous peoples, you also have perspectives on things. You have analysis. Um, you can bring your doubts to the table. They just, um, they just don't get to become the major story. Um, so, like, I think there is something... Um, very significant about being um, someone who shows up and, and names your doubts in a generous, 
kind of way and is able to say, well, actually, I don't think pipelines or I don't think mining is the um, the best, most life giving um, way that this the development of this land could take place. And I, you know, I, I wonder if and you can wonder about that, but only in the context of a, an established relationship, you know, you, uh, that that voice of wondering if it doesn't have like a, a reception uh, for it. If, if I'm not talking to a friend or to someone who knows that I'm going to show up for her when there's um, a real struggle taking place, then it's just me harping on the side and criticizing and throwing, you know, my opinions in. So, um, you know, I think that attitude of, oh, it is, it is complex, is, is an important one to hold. Um, I remember um, there's a story, I think I can be mean to, about Greenpeace, can't I? This is the only, <laughs> sure. I only know one mean story about Greenpeace, um, but I do dine out on it. So um, the uh, Anishinaabe Asking Nation, I believe, um, had this um, very ambitious plan for um, their future land use and how that was going to um, incorporate, you know, like positive development, you know, this, uh, this idea of um, um, mining with community consent, with full consultation to say, you know, okay, this area, perhaps we could talk about mining this area. Um, is t totally off limits and things like that. And there was this um, coalition, so I can't just blame Greenpeace, but a coalition of um, predominantly non-Indigenous uh, civil rights uh, or uh, whatever we call that, like activist groups, um, that won from the government this huge concession that this entire area would be marked no, like, no development on this area. So it was going to be like nature reserve. They kind of used that concept mm. of a of a preserve, right? And they did this in alliance with this indigenous nation until such time as the nation was saying, actually, no, we want we want some kinds of development. But mm. because you know the the like the Greenpeace voice won out, um, their land was again sort of taken away from them and their ability to make decisions for it. And I like this is this is a long time ago. Um, I don't. Um, like, I don't know huge details about it. It was before I was involved, but I've heard about this story a couple of times through channels. It was this sort of like, um, yeah, it was a case of a, a, a predominantly settler identity setting the agenda. And again, dispossessing indigenous people from their own lands by saying, you, we also don't think that you have the right mm. to, to say yes to development. Wow. I like your stories, Peter. They're, uh, I feel like you, you would have a lot of, of good stories of your time with, cpt and otherwise um right but but also we i mean we we wanted to invite you here specifically because of your um involvement in mennonite church eastern canada's uh truth and reconciliation working groups and right. as is no surprise to you we have been going through some changes in our nationwide church structures when it comes mm. to uh, indigenous settler solidarity work and so i'm you know i i, I feel like we we ta talked about this in a previous episode just kind of the news of the letting go of steve heinrichs in that um nationwide uh coordinator role and how it came as a shock to many people and to other people maybe <laughs> came as uh you know not a surprise or maybe as welcome news um, mm. I, I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, 
how, how do you think the news of these changing structures is going to affect the work we can do on a nationwide level? Mm. Yeah, well, um, I wasn't there, but various people have told me that Cheryl Bear spoke to the National Assembly quite clearly on this, um, and various other people who had been involved, Indigenous people who had been involved in, I would say, supporting the Mennonite Church to do the right thing, you know, um, mm. our partners in reconciliation, Indigenous people who are willing to come to our events and engage us in these conversations, you know, have spoken up and said, yeah, this was a very bad move and um, badly done and harmful to relationship. And I've been thinking a bit about this myself um, because Steve Heinrichs was in that position for you know, pretty much all the years that I've been around, you know, for me and for many other people, he's kind of been the face of things, which is not always a helpful dynamic to have one person be the holder of those relationships. Um, and I, you know, I felt one of Steve's gifts was he would always try to bring people along. He would always try to involve other people in whatever project he was doing, whatever work he was putting together. He was always trying to build, build relationships, right? So, you know, I, I don't want anyone to despair or say, well, Steve is gone. That's the end of, that's the end of relationship. Um, and I also don't want to undercut everything that he did and everything that he built. Um, and the people that came before him built, um, yeah, it's a big loss and it is significant that people don't build their relationships with institutions really, or if they do, they do it in an unhelpful way. You know, I, I hear people talking about what Mennonites are like and what we value. And I think that's not me, actually. Like, I'm a, I'm a Mennonite. I'm a pastor. But those aren't my traditional foods. And those aren't yeah. necessarily the way that I conduct meetings or do things. And, you know, so it can be harmful for people to relate to the institution in that way. They need personal relationships. They need to know, okay, Steve is like this. Peter's like this. Moses mm. is like this. Ryan is like this. That's someone I know who is engaged with this church and who is showing up for me or for my community in a way that that is helpful so all this to say it's complicated right um but certainly you know from my perspective sitting on the truth and reconciliation working group it was a, a big surprise and very disheartening to just find out that steve had been let go and the position was being restructured um and you know i've, I've had a few conversations with people who knew something about that decision um but yeah i'm still feeling kind of yeah, disheartened by that. Um, it's one of the things I feel is as a constituent of the larger church, I would have liked to have known that that was a possibility so that I could think about it. And if it was a financial issue, perhaps it would have been good to know that. But, you know, I didn't feel like I was involved in that decision making. Um, and, you know, I don't think I need a seat at every table. Um, but it did feel like an undervaluing of the work that Steve did and that that position did. And this was one of the, the things I used to boast about the Mennonite church too, with other, yeah. with other communities was, yeah, we have a very small national office and this work of indigenous settler relations is a priority. And there's a, there's a staff person for it. You know, it's this, it's this picture of Mennonites punching above their weight. Um, bad example. Um, <laughs> singing above their register. <laughs> catering above their means yes. you know um and yeah so to, to to learn of that being cut was was a real shame 
And it's been a big impact, right? Because you can't just end a relationship and say, okay, in in five months, somebody else will be along on a half-time basis to pick this relationship up. Right. That's not how people transition their relationships. That's not how friends um, relate to each other or allies, mm-hmm. right? So just thinking about it on a very basic sort of ally term, you know, is that showing respect to the people who have, to the indigenous peoples, individuals who have put a lot of trust in Mennonite communities who have been willing to show up to our events that they don't have to be at, you know, um, because they believe that we have something to offer. Um, it, it leaves a bad taste. And I think that's been, been pretty clear. It's no, it's no exaggeration to say that I would not have been involved in TRC work if it hadn't been for Steve. I mean, Steve, right. what you said about Steve bringing people along for the ride, it was so true in my experience. Um, he was the nudge, he was the goad, he was the, um, the encourager yeah. at many points over the last decade. And, and you can think whatever you want about his politics or his or whatever, um, and you can think whatever you want about where, where Indigenous settler relations should go from here. In Mennonite Church Canada, but that is undisputed. That, in, in my view, that, that that Steve was a collaborator, and that he he really he had a gift for engaging and involving people in in, in these important questions. I and, and still does. Uh, I, you know, he he's in Winnipeg, and I I uh, am in um, contact with him, and and he continues to to bring people along in in the work that. Uh, um, you know, in the work that he's doing outside of Mennonite Church Canada right. now, but yeah. Something I would like to see is a celebration of ministry that mm. would, you know, this is often done when somebody retires or leaves a position they've been very influential in. I think that would be a great, I mean, I, I don't know if this has been discussed at any level, um, but I would love to see that because I think there's a lot of things that have been accomplished over the last 10 years that should be recognized. Um, and honored, right? And it, that includes the experience of letting go and grieving, I think. Um, yeah. And I, so I feel like uh, for us as a nationwide spiritual community, there are some pieces missing there as well. Mm. That's a good point. We'll, we'll, we'll take, take that, that up, up with, with uh, <laughs> Ryan, you've got connections. connections. Yeah. <laughs> so many, so much power. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, Peter, when this, at least from what, was made public about this announcement um what we were told was that this was something that was in the works all along in a sense or, or that at least the hope was that the work of indigenous um settler relations or solidarity would be moved to the regional and to the local levels that mm. that that is where the energy and the uh, initiatives would come out of and now as as you are chairing the truth and reconciliation working groups uh in mennonite church eastern canada i guess the question i mean you're the you're the perfect person to ask how's it going (laughs) (laughs) fair question yeah um that was one of the things about that announcement that was a bit of a kick in the teeth was it was said and now the regions will do this work and I thought well, you could have asked, um, and, that, and I, you know, investigating into that and expressing that as a, a complaint, um, well, I, we, we we were sort of I began to understand a bit how that happened and where the communication was missed, and we were apologized to for that. So like that's that's all good as far as I'm concerned. Um, 
But, um, you know, I do want to name again this piece of, um, there's a lot of knowledge and connection that Steve had that we don't have access to. Um, so we're, we're basically trying to rebuild to figure out how to do those connections. So like, how do we know what the group in Manitoba is doing? Well, we only know if, you know, we can show up to meetings and things like that. Um, how do we, how do we know what MCC Indigenous Neighbours is doing? Um, you know, it just requires a lot more intention to show up to the, to more meetings. Right. And we're all volunteers, um, that, and that has a limit to it, right? There's only so much attention that you can put into this. So, you know, thanks be to God for people who are retired, who are keeping this stuff going, right? Who are showing up to meetings and are paying attention and listening and discerning together. Um, cause I don't know how any of this stuff would happen if it wasn't for that like vital section of our, of our, um, church ecosystem. Um, in some ways, the work of our, um, our groups, you know, continues. Um, we, we put a lot of stock on the possibilities for education, um, creating resources for liturgy as well. Um, and we're kind of looking for ways to prompt deeper engagement on in personal relationships. And that's, that's proving to be a tricky piece because it can't really be coordinated at a regional level. It's got to be done at the local level. Um, so, you know, hats off to some of the local groups that are doing super well on that and are really prioritizing it. Um, the, the bigger piece of sort of visioning what the future might be or how to do that, that's a, a larger, trickier piece. Obviously I have lots of opinions as you may have gathered, right? Um, but surprise, surprise, my opinions are not the ones that need to, to make sway, right? It doesn't matter if I have um, the perfect plan. Um, if our congregations are not interested in it, if we're not sensing it together as the work of the spirit, then uh, it's probably a bad plan and we shouldn't be trying to push it. So we don't have a lot of opportunities to gather as communities and kind of do deep discernment work. You know, we can, we can show up once a year and vote on something. That's fine. Um, but any, any project on any discernment, you know, if it's going to be done on a spiritual level, um, if it's going to be kind of deeply held within the, the community, if the community is going to say, is this the work of love that we're called to do? Uh, yeah, it takes a lot of time and investment. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of fighting for space in that one, one hour, one and a half hours on a Sunday morning. Right. So, um, there, I think I'm definitely just aware of what the limitations are. Um, we are, you know, say what you like about Mennonites, we like to do everything together. Like we like to think that we're doing this collectively and we don't have agreement on all these topics and we don't have one mind, um, to think about this stuff. So, um, one thing that we're doing as a truth and reconciliation working groups is looking at, um, yeah, how we can kind of be present at times when people are gathering to have some of these individual conversations about these matters of common concern. Cause we were very good at doing educational pieces uh, and I love educational pieces because I always learn something from the people who show up. Um, and, you know, uh, one week out, out of every 50, you've got to do something with what you've learned, really. So um, so getting us to that point is, is tricky. Peter's just highlighting so much of so, much, so many of the challenges that, that, that we're facing at this moment. Uh, you know, we don't we don't all agree. We have all this downward pressure from the restructuring that 
you know, local churches just aren't able to pick up all of these things that have been let go at the national or nationwide level. Um, just, yeah. this week, just this week, I was having a conversation with someone who said, how come you're not doing something for Indigenous Witness Sunday? There's no uptake on this stuff in Alberta. Well, how come? And, and, mm. and my honest answer is just, just there just isn't the bandwidth in, in many congregations to, to do all the work that could be done. Uh, and so you, you throw those institutional challenges into the mix with a lot of confusion about the issue itself and difference of opinion. And it's no wonder why things kind of stall when you don't have a catalytic person in a position to, to mobilize things like that. So I, I it's, it's just some of what's whirling around in my head as, as Peter speaks here. It's just um, so many of these streams converge. One of the questions we thought about um, in our regional group um, in a conversation with leadership of Mennonite Church East in Canada was how do we discern what we're called into, uh, what we should focus our efforts on. Oh, about which I, I always say, you know, yeah, when there's not energy somewhere, that doesn't mean you can't build energy. Um, but also sometimes there's not energy for a good reason. Um, you shouldn't be putting your efforts into that. So I just want to name that, you know, ideally our relationships are maintaining the energy, they're maintaining the interest. Um, and they're building the, the capacity to do more, more work. But so we talked about, you know, what are the hallmarks that we think of as, as good for discernment about where to engage? Um, so one person talked about, um, when, when we, as Christians are discerning, we're looking for love and we're looking to see where is God's love expressed through something. And that can be really tricky to talk about because of the history of, uh, missionary work and the desire to convert. Um, that's a whole other podcast right there, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, like there, there is this idea. Yeah. Is there something that I have to offer into this instance? You know, if it's a question of land rights, if it's a question of pipelines, do I actually have something? Has God given me something that I can offer in a way that is loving and caring and considerate of the other? And the other thing was, is there an invitation for us? Are we actually being invited into um, into showing up to support, into, um, <laughs> into whatever, um, or are we sort of inserting ourselves because we want to be there because we feel like some, some desire to be seen as a certain type of church, you know, how much of what we want to get out of this is, is not being recognized. And I think that's, that's a risk. Um, like, I think it's good for us to know that, um, you know, God's got the big picture. We just have to think about what's directly in front of us. Um, and yeah, in, in any church that's going through this process of right-sizing itself and thinking, yeah, you know, what, what, what can actually, what structures can we support? What ministries can we support? There's going to be grief and loss and a sense of, in some cases, bittersweet. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't really finish that or, or we, we didn't manage to follow through on that. And I think that's going to be the case, whether it's done in the best way possible or whether it's done, you know, two days before you cut the program. Mm -hmm. So mm. I just want us to remember as a spiritual community that we have resources to deal with that as well and that we can continue to pray with and for each other and for the future of the work. And we can continue to ask God for what we need to yeah. do the work. This was my, uh, my pandemic practice was praying every day, Jesus, mm. give me the strength to do what you want me to do today. Um, on the basis that if I didn't do it, it meant that Jesus didn't want me to do it. And it's fine. <laughs> so just pray it again tomorrow and maybe it'll happen tomorrow. That's a great practice. Yeah. 
you know, mm. if 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 we're doing it all ourselves, if we're not doing it out of seeking after love, then it's not. It may be good work, but it's not Christian work. You know, it's like it's not the work that God is calling us, us to, to do. do. Yeah. Um, which is not to diminish any other any other engagement in this type of work, but just to say, you know, in our best selves as we're working towards what we're called to do, those are the the pieces we need to be discerning around. Your yeah. your comment or your question, where is God's love in this? I think that's a it's a fantastic anchor for for so much of our reflection on these things. I and even even the whole, I mean, you alluded to some of the the controversy with like the history of missions and conversion and these kinds of things. I, I'm regularly brought up short. Like I I volunteer at the prison here in Lethbridge, and mm. I think north of sixty percent of the inmates would be indigenous, probably. Um, and I'm regularly stunned by. You know, I'll, I'll be in a circle and, and I'll see some, you know, heavily tattooed, um, rough looking customer. Uh, and I'll, I'll be expecting a certain kind of narrative out of their mouth. And, and what will come out wow. is the wildest, most charismatic theology I've ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm stunned by it because I think, oh man, all of my liberal Christian friends would be horrified by this. <laughs> but but it's, it happens so regularly, like like the uh, in, the, in the prison, people are looking for something existential to grab onto and to and, to, and so often they they blow apart my categories and and and, right. and even with with my kids, I mean, my daughter has spoken regularly of being in Mennonite circles where she says unless I'm kind of a mascot for indigenous victimization or grief, my my, my voice <laughs> isn't welcome. Um, yeah. and, and so I think we really have to pay attention to the questions that you brought up here when are we making this more about us than it, than it needs to be or should be and, and where is the love of god in this and can we acknowledge that that the, all the, all those things filter out in ways that don't neatly adhere to our our nice clear lines of of, of how these things should go because it rarely goes yeah. that way <laughs> right in, in, in my limited experience <clears throat> and i i love that example and i i feel like like if if we are not, if I'm not experiencing my faith as something that is a lifeline for me in an age of huge anxiety and uncertainty, I don't know what the future is going to be like. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, yeah. You know, then am I really paying attention? Am I actually listening to God's spirit? So like, for me, the work of engaging in sort of both secular and sacred contexts with indigenous solidarity has been a great boost to my faith and the my understanding of God's grace and God's desire for us as, you know, poor and weak children who are struggling our way through a, a difficult and fallen world. So, like, um, that has been very significant for me. Like, I don't, I don't know what type of Christian I would be if I hadn't come here 12 years ago and engage in that. So like, I think what I'm trying to say is I've, I've benefited tremendously through doing this work. And, you know, my benefit is not the purpose of the work, but I, I don't think God puts us in relationships that are one way. And mm. we, we have to be open at all times as in the spiritual journey to our own transformation. We should probably be looking for it and expecting it. Um, even if we don't know the shape it's going to take. So like, where else can this happen? Um, what 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 is more pressing in this moment than being open to that sort of transformation? Because we know we we literally know that our our institutions um, aren't aren't 
aren't tuned to hold what we're trying to hold, like all of our desires. So we have to be engaging with God's spirit and looking for the, those other voices that are present in our in our immediate like surroundings that are um, that we can discern God's voice from and try to figure out, okay, what, what, what is it today? What strength do I need today? What strength am I being given to do what work today? Right. Trying to say hallelujah. That's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah. Well said. Uh, Peter, it, maybe it, it, as a way to kind of wrap that up, you know, I think there can be a lot of um, uncertainty and anxiety about what the future holds for the church. Um, but hearing you speak about... Um, yeah, hearing you speak about where you see God in all of this and, and how you're kind of framing uh, all of this, I, I wonder if you could just give us maybe something that you see uh, it, it that is hopeful in terms of maybe what God mm. is putting in front of you, uh, or maybe it's it's for Tumsi, or or maybe it's for mm. um, the working groups. Like, is there something that that even today? you feel like yes this is where the spirit is moving and this is where i'm seeing love uh and, and this is where we're being called yeah so i grew up in in england as i mentioned and the 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 predominant narrative around religion was it was over right in the 90s was like we're living in this sort of secular age religion doesn't have a place um and so so goodbye with that right and um you know I, I disagreed with that on a personal level but then as i have grown older and have connected more and have traveled and seen things i realized like how in error that is um because we are living at this hugely religious time like not even not even like broaden things out to spiritual <laughs> but like yeah th there's huge interest in in what life is about which is a spiritual question, and in what, um, in how we're sharing the planet, which is a spiritual question. And I just feel like my conviction is that God is not done with us yet, even when we collectively have tried to close the door and say, okay, we get it, God, we've got the message, we don't need you anymore, mm. right? God is actually not done revealing things and calling us. And those of us who are part of established denominations, things like that, yeah, the, God's not done with those either, right? Um, churches will close, denominations will restructure and close and merge and things like that. Um, but none of that affects the, the oneness of God that pervades all things and all people and all movements and things like that. Um, we're always going to be in a state of, um, we're like, history is always about restructuring, right? It's always about, um, okay, what's new today? What is fresh? Um, what word do we need to speak in this day? And I, I think we could do a lot by being less attached um, to the particular forms that we've inherited. Like we have to be true to what's been passed on to us, to the the truth, uh, the the goodness of that. But um, we also have to be willing to let things um, compost, right, and sink down into the earth and take a different form. Um, and I just I see God in that, or or I see. Um, the intention um, that God has for us, like how we're supposed to live in that, those types of metaphors. Um, so that, you know, um, I don't know if um, what, what shape the church is going to be in 
in uh, 15 years or something like that. But I know there's going to be something like God's not going to, God's already taken a day off, right? In creation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so like now let's get back to work. <laughs> well, I love that. Yeah. Well, you know, Peter, we should let you go and, and just want to say a big thank you for joining us for this conversation and for your insight and really, you know, if this is the new shape, uh, we don't quite know, but hopefully there will be more communication between our regional groups in terms of what we're doing and supporting each other and resourcing each other and, and walking together more intentionally across the country. Definitely. I see it happen. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. I, I especially appreciate that last blast of hopeful theology. That was, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. I feel kind of like ending this episode is kind of like how things are ending or maybe starting again in Mennonite Church Canada where like, there's no easy answers. We don't we don't quite know the way forward um, and, and yet we're called to go forward. So Ryan, give us give us your your uh, closing remarks then to, to get us home. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I should uh... Because I mean, I've 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 lived this story in a personal way for twenty years in my family. I've I've engaged where I can in my community. I've I've tried to learn, and even even after all that, it just seems so enormously complex. Um, and yeah. and and so many of the good things that things that we do for, with good intentions don't end well. Some of the things that we wow. do with with lousy intentions have unexpected positive outcomes. I mean. I, I really appreciated what, what Peter said about the centrality of relationships in his, in his conversation about Steve and how you can't just pick up a relationship. It's not just plug and play with a new character in place. Uh -huh. um, and I think we would do well to remember that with our, our Indigenous neighbours more broadly. It's not just an abstract category of people that have been victimised. Um, it's not just some issue that we have to solve. These are human beings with stories and with... Um, histories and with family connections and with very similar desires to everyone else whether they're Japanese or Filipino or white Mennonite or yeah. anybody we we are human beings who want to give and receive love we are human beings who want to have secure places to live and to have enough to eat and drink and we um, often I think so many of our conversations on this on, on these matters they ratchet up the identity category so high because we want to make a difference and we forget that 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 um some of these categories that we that we that we talk about endlessly they're abstractions and underneath those abstractions are are just human beings that need to relate to each other in personal relationships and to be open to each other and to hearing stories and learning from each other and having assumptions blurred and all these kinds of things that are crucial if we're going to ever make any progress it's not to downplay the political in any way but um that's that's what yeah. I've discovered over the last few decades. Mm. And, you know, maybe th there's uh, another little piece of insight that if we do focus ourselves on relationships, uh, then what we're really advocating for, <laughs> hopefully, are people that we love, in, like in real ways, right? Not not abstract political ideas, but we're advocating for our loved ones because we've built those relationships. That really changes um, and, and, and it's something that I think even people who have no interest in being politically active can relate to. Totally. And, and, it, and it's hard because I have people in my church who, 
who who say, you know what, I would love to just to, 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 to lean into this a bit more, but I honestly don't know where I would go to make an indigenous friend. Uh, and they and they try various things and it's it can be a bit forced and sloppy and artificial and but I think we have to try to find ways to do that. I mean, I was on a podcast with my daughter a while back about reconciliation. Uh, and we have a obvious connection because we're we're, we're father and daughter, but yeah. but uh they asked what reconciliation looked like from her perspective and 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 she I was really proud of her. She said for me, reconciliation, like they said, how is your relationship an expression of reconciliation? And she said, well, it's not really. It's just a relationship first between, uh. between me and my dad. And, and, and only after that do, do the identity factors come in. Um, and I think that that can't easily be replicated on a broader scale because we have this, this connection, obviously, that preceded. Right. But, but it, I think it, it speaks to something true and necessary that I can't quite put my finger on yet, but somehow moving from seeing each other as placeholders for an identity category, moving from there into the category of friend, brother, mother, you know, colleague first, and having that personal connection and relationship where you're invested in them and their future in, in, in a way that, um, that matters to both sides and and it's not easy it's not easy just just produce those especially with the, with the ugly history that we're all involved in but i have to believe that's that's a crucial building block for for meaningful change oh. and and, and uh, sometimes it's not us who are building them but you know it, it comes from the other direction where like surprisingly you're invited into a relationship and uh, invited in to be part of a, a family and community that you never expected and um a relationship is two ways always a, a good one yeah. a healthy one yeah well you know i think that that's a good place for us to wrap it up ryan thanks for thanks for being part of this and uh, look forward to seeing you again next time sounds good take care moses thank you for listening to the Menocast. you can find us at themenocast.com Listen to episodes on our website or wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a review if you like what you heard, and join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Menocast. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions. You can contact us on our website or at themenocast at gmail.com. We would also like to thank Common Word for partnering with us to give away awesome resources and our advisory group for guiding us along the way. Lastly, I want to thank my co-hosts, Carrie Lane and Ryan Duick, for the great conversations. I'm Moses Falco. Until next time.